0: You are tuned in to Seasoned Crime, and I am the host, Jasmine Nicole. I do this show weekly so I can bring you a story about a minority. I do all the hard work and the research so I can share with you a true crime event that you've probably never heard of. Or maybe you've heard the name, but it's very unlikely that you've heard all of the details of these stories these are the ones that normally don't make the front page. Most of the time, these stories go untold, even though they deserve the recognition and acknowledgement that others get. So, that's where I come in, and I'm here to give it to you. We have officially made it in one month of 2022. I always say January is the longest month of the year, and after that, everything just seems to fly by. So, Shout out to all of us because we're still here. Today's story um, has a lot going on and I really don't have a lot going on in my life. So we're just going to go ahead and jump on into it. I am going to take you back to the 80s. The main crimes that I'm going to highlight in this story will span over 53 days. And during that short amount of time, this duo murdered eight, raped seven, kidnapped three, and committed 14 robberies, all before getting caught. This duo was as different as night and day. One of them was a career criminal, and the other had never been in trouble before in their life. Today, I am going to tell you about Alton Coleman and his girlfriend, Deborah Brown. Born in Waukegan, Illinois, on November 6th, 1955, Alton entered this world in a messed up situation from birth. His mom was a sex worker who also worked a total of three jobs. So she had a lot going on all by herself. And she wasn't looking to be slowed down by a newborn baby at the time. So she decided to dispose of the baby. Literally dispose of, as in throw away. She threw newborn Alton into a trash can, but luckily his grandmother got him out, and she ended up taking custody of him. I say luckily very loosely, because yes, he could have died, and that would have been tragic, but I mean, the situation with his grandmother wasn't that much better. According to a local minister who was involved with the family at birth, Robert Evans, The family was involved in some real messed up stuff. They were reportedly involved in bestiality and group sex that they forced Alton into with his grandmother and his mom. The grandmother also did some voodoo and she would have Alton participate by making him kill and dismember animals in order to prepare those animals for rituals school life wasn't much better. Alton ended up dropping out in middle school due to constant bullying. The kids used to call him pissy because he would wet his pants a lot in middle school. After that, he stayed in and out of trouble and remained a frequent flyer on the cops' radar. Alton had been clinically diagnosed with multiple mental disorders, including borderline personality disorder and mixed personality disorder. Between 1973 and 1983, Alton had been charged with six different sex crimes, one of those against his own niece, who was eight years old at the time. His sixth case happened February 28, 1984, and that was for the rape of a 14-year-old girl by the name of Shalandra Thompson. It was during this time that he met his girlfriend, Deborah Brown. At the age of 21, Deborah was one of 11 children. She was considered borderline intellectually disabled. I'm not sure if that was the result of a head trauma that she had experienced as a child, or if it was just something that she was born with. Debra had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder as well. She had no criminal history at all up until this point in her life. She was actually engaged to someone else when she met Alton, but there was just something about Alton that had such a strong hold on her that she left her fiancé and the rest of her family to go and live with Alton. Alton was in the middle of facing the rape charges for Shalanja, and he believed that this one could actually stick. So, while he was out awaiting trial, instead of waiting around to find out if he would be charged with this or not, he decided to flee. And Deborah, oh, she stood by her man on this. May 29, 1984 was the start of their 53-day crime spree. They left Waukegan and went to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Alton was a charmer, and he used his charm to make friends with a woman named Juanita Wheat. I'm not sure on the full details, but I do know that he was able to somehow charm his way near Juanita's daughter, Vernita. Alton ended up abducting Vernita and took her back to his hometown of Waukegan. Vernita's decomposed body was found on June 19th in an abandoned building only four blocks away from Alton's grandmother's house. Vernita had been raped and her official cause of death was ligature strangulation. This case was on the FBI radar immediately due to the fact that it crossed state lines. On May 31st, two days after Vernita's abduction, Alton made friends with Robert Carpenter in Waukegan. And again, I'm not sure how he was able to make friends this close, this fast, but it was truly a skill of his. He was able to get Robert to let him stay over. And when they got up in the morning, he asked Robert if he could use his car to go to the store. And Robert agreed. Alton, well, he never returned. From this point, Deborah now joins and becomes involved as part of his ruse. June of 1984, both Alton and Deborah popped up in Gary, Indiana, and it was here where they encountered two young girls, nine-year-old Annie Hillard and seven-year-old Tamika Turks. It says that they were out running errands, and I will say at first thought, I thought maybe I misread it or something due to their age, but then it kind of clicked as I was going through that this was the 80s. So if you think about the times, it's not that unlikely at all that they were probably out picking up something or doing some small errands alone. Alton and Deborah both sexually assaulted the girls. Then Alton stomped Tamika with his shoe and carried her off into some bushes, leaving her for dead. Annie was forced to perform oral sex on both Alton and Deborah, and then she was raped. They thought Tamika was dead, but while they were assaulting Annie, they heard moaning coming from the bushes. Once they realized that Tamika wasn't dead, they left Annie and went back to Tamika, choking her out with the belt and killing her. They ended up leaving, thinking that they had killed Annie as well. However, she was found alive by a passing motorist who got help for her. Tamika's partially decomposed body was found June 19th of 1984. The exact same day that Tamika's body was found, a woman by the name of Donna Williams went missing from Gary, Indiana. Alton and Deborah had posed as a couple named Phil and Pam that were visiting from Boston. They used this ruse to befriend Donna, and they would end up raping and strangling her. On June 26, Donna's car was found in Detroit, and forensics were able to confirm that Alton's fingerprints were found in the car, and they also found a fake ID that Deborah had used before. Donna's decomposed body was found on July eleventh in Detroit, only about half a mile from where they located her car. The day before Donna's body was found, Alton and Deborah had broken into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Palmer Jones in Dearborn Heights, Michigan. They were left alive in their home, but they had been severely beaten. The phone cord was ripped out of the wall so they couldn't call the cops, and Alton and Deborah stole whatever money they found, along with the couple's vehicle. The next stop on their murder spree was Toledo, Ohio. On July 5th, they followed their normal plan and used a ruse to make friends with a lady named Virginia Temple. Virginia had multiple children, so her family got extremely worried after not hearing from her for a while. They called 911 and officers were sent to the home to do a welfare check. When they got to Virginia's place, the first thing they found were her children scared and alone. Upon further search of the home, they found Virginia and her nine-year-old daughter Rochelle both strangled to death, and they were left in the crawlspace of the home. On the same day that this happened, Deborah and Alton broke into the home of Frank and Dorothy Duverdack. They were alive, but they were found bound at the hands and feet by electrical cords that were cut from inside the home. There was some jewelry and money missing, and their car was stolen. Dorothy's watch would later be found lying under the body of another victim. As if it hadn't already been an eventful day, they weren't finished yet. Still, on the same day, July 5th, they ended up in Dayton, Ohio that evening at the home of Reverend Millard Gay and his wife Catherine. They charmed their way into the home and ended up staying for a few days. On July 9th, they went to a church service with the gays. And after that service, the gays dropped Alton and Deborah off in downtown Cincinnati. In Cincinnati on July 12th, at the age of 15, Tony's story goes missing. Her body was found eight days after her disappearance with her body, they found a bracelet that belonged to Virginia Temple. After this, the FBI had had enough. And they added Alton to the most wanted list as a special edition. The 11th person on their 10 person most wanted list. Alton was only the 10th person ever to get that distinguished title position. And, you know, things don't stay quiet for too long with them. The next day on July 13th, Alton and Deborah were riding their bikes in Norwood, Ohio, around 9.30 a.m. Less than three hours later, they were driving away in a vehicle of Harry Walker. Harry was found unconscious, along with his wife, Marlene, who was raped and beaten to death. Harry would later testify that Alton and Deborah showed up asking about the potential sale of a camper, but once Alton approached, instead of talking about the camper, he started beating him with a candlestick. The coroner would later say that Marlene was bludgeoned 20 to 25 times. They would also find shards of broken glass bottle in the living room, and the bottle had Alton's fingerprints on it. They found two bloody footprints made by two different pairs of shoes in the basement. When Alton and Deborah had left the home, they left with money, jewelry, some shoes, and the walker's vehicle, a red Plymouth. They also left behind the two bikes that they had been seen riding on earlier that day, as well as some clothing. A couple of days later, on July 15th, Alton and Deborah kidnapped a college professor named Oline Carmichael, Jr. They got Oline in Williamsburg, Kentucky, and they put Oline in the trunk of his own vehicle and drove back to Ohio with him. The Red Plymouth that they had stole from the Walkers was found abandoned in Kentucky. A couple of days after Oline was kidnapped, his vehicle was discovered abandoned in Dayton, Ohio. And not only was the vehicle found, but Aline was as well. He was still in the trunk of the vehicle and he was alive. From here, Alton and Deborah went back to the home of Revan Gay and his wife. By this time, their faces were everywhere. So Revan Gay knew exactly who Alton was when he showed up. He asked Alton why he was doing all of this. Alton didn't directly answer the question, but he responded by saying, I am not going to kill you, but generally, we kill wherever we go. He kept his word, and he didn't kill the gays, but he did steal their vehicle, and Alton and Deborah drove off to Evanston, Illinois. On the ride there, they ditched the gays' vehicle and ended up stealing the vehicle of 75-year-old Eugene Scott, who they killed in the process of obtaining his vehicle. The FBI was working hard trying to catch up with Alton and Deborah, but they always seemed to be a step behind. That is, until they got a real-time tip from someone who recognized Alton. Deborah and Alton were walking across the intersection, and it just so happened they walked by someone who had grown up in the same neighborhood as Alton back in Waukegan. Like I had mentioned before, Alton and Deborah's face was everywhere. So when this person saw Alton, they immediately ran to the nearest gas station and called the police to advise of the sighting. The police came and found Alton and Deborah sitting on bleachers in a park nearby. The cops went to approach Alton, so Deborah tried to walk off in the opposite direction, and it was there where she was obtained by two other police officers. Both were arrested without any incident. At the time of the arrest, Deborah had a gun in her purse, and Alton had a steak knife in his socks. They also had with them bags of hats and t-shirts. They would change shirts and hats every three to four blocks whenever they would walk around to keep their disguise. Once they were brought in, they were positively identified based on their fingerprints. About a week after they were arrested, officials from at least 50 jurisdictions from multiple states that the crimes had spanned across met up to try to plan an attack together about how they would go forward with prosecuting Alton and Deborah, They could all agree that they wanted to go for the death penalty with this case. So Michigan was ruled out due to that state not employing capital punishment, and the decision was that Ohio would get the first attempt at sentencing. U.S. Attorney Dan K. Webb spoke out about this, saying, quote, We are convinced that the prosecution in Ohio can most quickly... And most likely result in the swiftest imposition of the death penalty case against Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. Alton and Deborah were convicted for the rape and the murder of Tony Story in Cincinnati and Marlene Walters in Norwood. And they were both sentenced to death. In addition to the death sentences, they were both charged with an additional twenty years for transporting Oline Carmichael across state lines. From this point, between the years of 1985 and 2002, Alton's case went to the Supreme Court multiple times. He continuously tried to fight that the ruling he received was unconstitutional, but no matter how many times he tried to fight, the ruling never changed. April 25th of 2002, the day before Alton's scheduled execution, Ohio Supreme Court rejected a claim from Alton's attorney. That the state had intended to turn his execution into a spectator sport by accommodating a large number of victims and survivors to the execution for his final meal alton had a feast he had well-done filet mignon smothered with mushrooms fried chicken breast salad with french dressing sweet potato pie with whipped cream french fries collard greens cornbread, onion rings, broccoli with cheese, biscuits and gravy, and a cherry Coke. The next day, on August 26th, Alton was executed via lethal injection in a death chamber at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville, Ohio. So many people showed up to view this that they had to set up a closed-circuit viewing venue outside of the building because they didn't have room for everyone inside. Reginald Wilkinson, director of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, spoke out saying that Alton didn't directly express remorse for what he had done, but he did admit to his crimes, still not directly, but in his own words. Alton had received two death sentences from Ohio and one from each Illinois and Indiana. At the time of his execution, Alton was the only person in the United States who had death sentences in three different states. Deborah's fate was a bit different from Alton's. Her capital punishment sentence was commuted to life in prison by Governor Richard Celeste in 1991. He said he made that decision based on Deborah's low IQ scores. The average IQ is between 85 to 115, and Deborah's ranged from 54 to 74. The governor also felt that Deborah's relationship with Alton was very master to slave like, and that was a big part of her actions being influenced by him. As you would probably expect, the decision was very controversial, especially because at first, Deborah never showed any kind of remorse for her actions. She was so unremorseful, in fact, that she even wrote a letter to the judge during her sentencing in Ohio, and it read in part, quote, I kill the bitch, and I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. Deborah had been given the death penalty in Indiana as well for the death of Tamika Turks, but that was also commuted and changed to a 140-year life sentence in 2018. Currently, Deborah is serving a life sentence with no possibility of parole at Dayton Correctional Institution in Ohio. In 2005, she did finally express remorse for her actions, and she recorded a video apologizing to the victim's families. The motive of what led to these killings and other crimes is completely unknown. Some say it could have been racially motivated. Both Alton and Deborah are Black, as well as the majority of the victims, so I don't know, but I read a few places that this was possibly done out of an intense hatred for Black people. This one, I, it made no sense to me. I I wasn't going for it at all. On the flip side of that, which is the side that I agree with, is that if we are going to look at the race aspect as anything in this reason... I think in that case, the targeting of black people was more strategic than anything. They blended into the black communities. So it was a lot easier for them to go unnoticed. No one thought anything about, you know, a a black man staying with these people in the neighborhoods. But if a random white couple would have been walking around, then I think people would have looked a little harder because they would have stood out. There are a lot of serial killers whose names are known worldwide, but for Alton and Deborah, I'll be the first to say that this is this is the first time I'd ever heard of them prior to looking into this case. There are currently three Criminal Minds episodes that are believed to have been inspired by the crimes that were committed by Alton and Debra. And there you have it. Another episode of Season Crime Down and another Minority Highlighted. I was going to do a segment of It Takes a Village because I haven't done one of those in a while, but I changed my mind on doing that this week. There's so much going on right now. And in the media alone, I've heard of at least three suicides of higher profile people that have occurred in the past week or two. I just want to take the time to speak out for a little bit and say, check on your people. There is no amount of money Fame, IG followers, designer labels, none of that can heal you mentally. I've spoken on this before and I will continue to speak out about this because I wholeheartedly believe that in minority communities and communities of color, mental health is not seen as it should be. You have to go on in your life with the expectations that you're the strong one. That you have to stand tall and you have to deal with overcoming anything you're faced. Because, I mean, that's what our ancestors did. But just know that it's okay to feel weak. It's okay to, to just feel. Just surviving alone is an accomplishment in itself. We have to start giving ourselves and the people around us more credit for just getting through another 24 hours. We are still all we got. So just know, no matter how bad or how low things get, as long as there is still breath in you, you still have the opportunity to stand up. Remember, you are not alone. But if at any point you feel like you are, there's always the suicide hotline. And that number is 800-273-8255. As always, I appreciate all of you for listening. Please continue to like, share, and rate the show. We have seen our most amount of listeners so far this month, and I hope that we can continue to build off of that and to continue to say that month over month. Feel free to let me know how I'm doing or if you have any comments or feedback or any story suggestions. You can always reach me on IG at Seasoned Crime, and you can also hit me up via email seasoncrime at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the love and support, and I hope you all have a great week. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Season Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.